This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, welcoming you to Episode 392 of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have back with me Jonathan Marks. Jonathan and Scott Fleming and Richard Riley recently authored a paper in the ACFE Fraud Magazine entitled Meta Model of Fraud, Two Combined Triangles for Better Fraud Case Comprehension. In this special live recording, Jonathan talks to us about the meta model of fraud and how you can use this to help develop a more effective set of controls for your anti-corruption compliance program. It's a fascinating exploration of the not intersection of fraud and, and, and corruption, but how really corruption is a subset of fraud. And if you use the principles of fraud detection, prevention, and remediation in your corruption and a corruption program, it will make it much stronger. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is uh, Alec DeLone. You're listening to the FCPA Compliance Report live from Moderno Tacos, Tex-Mex in Houston, Texas. So we are live, and you are privileged today to have Jonathan Marks. Jonathan is a well-known compliance practitioner, CPA, internal audit, and all-around good guy. And we are live today to talk about his most recent article, <clears throat> Meta Model of Fraud. It's in this most recent issue of the ACFE magazine. And in this, uh, Jonathan uses the fraud triangle as a starting point to explain why, uh, although the model certainly was innovative in the 1950s, it really needs to be rethought and perhaps updated. And he and some of his colleagues have been doing significant research over the past 18 or 24 months on that. So Jonathan, first of all, uh, welcome to Moderno. I hope you enjoyed your breakfast taco and thank you. I did, Tom, and it's great being here. So uh, tell us about the article, Uh, really just kind of walk us through, I guess maybe I should start with, why did you guys uh, feel the need to look at the information uh, and data that you did to come up with the article? So there was a couple significant um, happenings in the in the professional world. There were a few cases that we saw that were that had some things in them that were sort of concerning to us as professionals, and so we took a deeper dive. And you know, one of them was uh, Travis versus State Farm Fire and Insurance Casualty. The other was Kremsky versus Kremsky, which is the one that originally poked our interest, and then Hop versus Heaps. You know, these three cases talk about. Um, the fraud examiner getting into the mind of the um, alleged fraudster. And um, once we started to realize that the courts were not keen on fraud examiners who are not licensed psychologists or sociologists or had any, you know, um, advanced degree in in, in mental health or mental behavior, we realized that um, there was probably some more digging that we had to do. And it it was probably worth taking a look at how we go about, um, you know, fraud, you know, fundamentally as well. So what is the fraud triangle, and why uh, is it a good starting point to help in any analysis of fraud? Well, you know, to sort of paraphrase what, you know, Donald Cressy did back in the 50s, who basically, and by the way, it's sort of a misnomer, Cressy did not really create the fraud triangle. That was really the, you know, Stephen Albrecht that, you know, came up with the fraud triangle. But, you know, what Cressy did was he looked at over 200 cases, and he analyzed those cases, and he looked for the sort of the common elements of what a fraudster uh, might be going through when he committed he or she committed fraud, you know, and back then it was certainly more he than she. Today it's, uh, you know, it's uh, it's almost even. But um, you know, Cressy came up with three elements, which were pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. 
and you know you know the pressure obviously I think that's you know that's very self-explanable um, you know everyone goes through pressures in their life whether it's financial pressures or other types of pressures so you know sort of the pressure to cross over the ethical line and you know ironically we've been talking about this a lot this week but you know there's a lot of folks out there that are situationally ethical that if pressed or pressured in the right way they might cross over that line and so you know Cressy came up with certainly pressure you know opportunity is really the opportunity to commit fraud you know are controls in place um, you know are they operating effectively you know we know controls provide reasonable assurance but you know if the fraudster really figured out how to override those controls or realize that there was a gap in controls you know could they just pass right through that and actually commit the fraud and you know rationalization is really the next post facto um, you know uh, state of mind whereby somebody rationalizing um, you know the fraud whether they're entitled to it or they think they they you know they deserve it or or so on and so forth you know those were the three elements that Cressy came up with and um, you know certainly things that we you know consider today um, fast forward to 2007 2008 time frame where we were taking a look at the Bernie Madoffs of the world and the Boskis and the Milkins and the Kozlowskis you know, one of the things that I did was I took a look at the fraud triangle and said, hey, you know, it's really not applicable in today's environment since, as I told you, you know, Cressy really looked at sort of, you know, smaller middle market companies. A lot of these bigger frauds had bigger personalities. So, you know, even though we use the fraud triangle in our example for our meta model of fraud, certainly something that really should be looked at a little bit closer and maybe the fraud Pentagon might be considered, which adds two additional elements to the fraud triangle, which are competence and arrogance. And competence is really the person's ability to um, override internal controls and basically socially control the situation to his or her advantage and sell it to others. As we know, you know, fraudsters build a false sense of integrity around themselves because they want you to trust them. And being able to sell it to someone else, um, whatever story that might be, and, you know, Bernie Madoff is an example, was a master at selling. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, competence is certainly a piece that really should be considered as part of the human factors that, you know, we mentioned before. You know, an arrogance is basically, uh, you know, an attitude of superiority or greed where policies and procedures or ethics simply just don't apply to those individuals, you know, um, sort of a sense of entitlement. So, you know, that's that's the fraud triangle, so to speak, Tom. And, you know, I could certainly talk about the other elements of fraud that we included in our meta model. So I was uh, actually wanted to move to that, but could you explain uh, in response to the fraud triangle, companies set up either detect or prevent controls. How did those controls work? And then how does the meta model uh, move past the um, uh, defensive measures companies uh, put in place to really explain uh, how fraud occurs going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. So while the fraud triangle identifies conditions under which fraud may occur, the triangle of fraud action, which I will talk about in a second, um, actually, let's talk about that right now, the triangle of fraud, fraud action, which is the act of the concealment and the conversion, um, which are the elements of a fraud, you know, not the sort of the psychological aspects of a fraudster. Um, describe the activities an individual must perform to per, to, per, uh, to to perpetrate that particular fraud or or to execute on that be, you know bad behavior. Um, according to the evolution of fraud theory by uh, Dominie Fleming and Mary Jo Kranicker and Richard Riley, all of which I have high respect for, you know th- this really comes into play. And so, 
let's, you know, when we look at the elements of a fraud, the act represents the execution methodology of the fraud. So in other words, the schemes that somebody can actually perpetrate. The concealment is a strategy. So the concealment strategy is how do we hide this? And the conversion would be as how would the individual take what they have, what information they have, whatever they committed, you know, and convert that into some type of gain or benefit to them. So, you know, in the past where we really focused on and I think a lot of practitioners focus on the fraud triangle, looking at the fraudster and trying to get into the mind behind the crime, which we told you based on these three cases, and I think there's actually one more, that the, you know, the courts are not really in favor of you know, fraud examiners getting into the mind behind people. By taking a look at sort of the act of concealment strategy and the conversion piece, combined with those three psychological or human factor elements or the four elements and the fifth one that I mentioned with regard to the fraud Pentagon really does give us a better way to kind of look at, you know, how fraud might occur. And if it does, sort of the reasons behind that. And then, you know, in the middle, if you look at the meta model that we actually put forth, we talk about sort of the anti-fraud measures and what measures can a corporation actually put in place, you know, to help, you know, deter or detect fraud. In other words, what controls can they put into place, as you mentioned? Um, you know, a lot of times those controls are not properly designed, as we well know. A lot of times those controls are um, weak. A lot of times those controls don't necessarily meet the objectives of what the organization has set out to do. But, um, you know, I think, you know, from, from what you, from what from the question that you asked and, and from what we're actually putting forth today, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different paradigm than what everybody is used to. And I think it's one where, you know, regulators need to take a good, strong look at this. I think the AICPA and other professional organizations need to good, take a good, strong look at this. You know, we talk about SAS 99 and actually considering fraud in an audit. Um, you know, I think if you read some of the stuff that's in there, it's very, very good. But I think depicting it in this way really does send a very, very strong message to the practitioners on how to potentially combat, um, you know, fraud in today's environment. So, Jonathan, uh, you've been an anti-fraud examiner for, for many years now. Obviously, you've seen many different types of schemes. Uh, in the FCPA world, we have seen, obviously, uh, also many different types of bribery and corruption schemes. But uh, do you see fraudsters becoming more sophisticated as companies become better at putting in prevent or detect controls? Because in the FCPA world, I see more sophisticated bribery and corruption schemes. Would that be uh, accurate? And does the, your meta model address that issue? I think it does. I think the meta model addresses it because, like I said, you know, if we talk about the fraud, we'll call it the fraud triangle. But if you look at, you know, what Cressy came up with, pressure, opportunity, and rationalization, you know, those that's really the perpetrators, like I said. And then you look at the actual crime, which is the act of the concealment and the conversion. I, I think, you know, the acts, a lot of the acts are pretty much the same. But when you look at how they can try to conceal this, it's very, very, very creative in today's environment because, you know, the more the more that compliance programs evolve and they become more mature and the better you have, you better you have people on the lookout for potential bad behavior within an organization, the more the fraudster um, in committing the, these bad acts, whether it be bribery or asset misappropriation or financial statement fraud or a combination of all three, has to be that much more clever. And so, you know, while, while we try to profile white collar criminals, 
or fraudsters or people that pay bribes, they're profiling us as well. And so, you know, they're going to they need to understand the sort of the landmarks and the minefields of a control environment. And they become much, much more clever and sophisticated in the way they're carrying out some of these, you know, some of these um, some of these frauds. I agree with you. I think, you know, times have changed. It's just not as simple as, you know, taking a bag of cash and walking up to a government official and bribing them. There are other things in play here. There are shell companies. You know, I mean, you and I could sit here and talk for hours upon hours of the different fraud schemes, you know, whether it's gift cards, you know, saving up per diem allowances in order to pay off government officials, shell companies, you know, different types of vendors, conflicts of interests, you know, those, you know, any other type of benefit that you could, you know, generally imagine, they've become more and more and more sophisticated. And that's why I think having this metal model of fraud can really help. So, Jonathan, in the 2018 ACFE Global Report, one of the things that really struck me was the uh, indicia or red flags of a fraudster were very similar to the red flags or indicia uh, under robbery and corruption. And it's really that psychological component that you've talked about. Is that something, is that a message that you find your clients are are more um, willing to hear now that they need to take a look at those types of factors in a bribery and corruption world as well? I think so. Um, And I think that's a great point. And so if you look at sort of the elements or the characteristics of a fraudster um, and you, you kind of break them all out, you look at, you know, where we are you know, where we are today and what we've been trying to put forth as practitioners over the years. You know, if I walked into a um, internal audit meeting or an audit committee meeting and we started talking about profiling individuals, you know, as part of our risk assessment process, people would look at us and say, well, we really can't do that. I think, you know, people have come full circle now and realize that the human element is really, 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 really critical. And this is something that I've been beating the drum on for literally since, you know, um, 2004, 2005. And, you know, people looked at me, you know, you know, with crazy eyes. And now all of a sudden, they're, you know, I, I think they're really starting to, to pay attention. You know, Joe Wells, who was really the, the founder of the ACFE and, and the father of the ACFE, said something which resonates in my head till this day. He said, books and records don't commit fraud, people do. And books and records don't commit or pay bribes, people do. And unless you understand that human element and human characteristics, it's very, very difficult to assess risk. Um, and and um, I, I think people are just missing something. So, you know, in our risk assessment, in the way we actually carry out our risk assessment and our recipe for risk assessment, we actually take a look at the human element and consider the gatekeepers and what their traits might be and, you know, sort of some of those factors that the ACFE lays out or the indicia of a, the indicia of, of a fraudster and um, those particular characteristics. And there are people that are at higher risk and people should stand up and pay attention to them and they should look at the controls surrounding them and they should put monitoring procedures in place. So uh, absolutely, I mean, you know, um, you know, the, 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 the schemes are generally the same. The way they carry it out are a lot different. Like we talked about, they're becoming a lot more clever. And I think, you know, the human element is something that's been ignored for way too long. And, um, I'm glad finally now it's you know being put forth as sort of one of those key factors in assessing risk and you know and generally in the in 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 organizations plight to you know deter and detect fraud. Jonathan, you're here in Houston. Uh, you spoke yesterday to the Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable on root cause analysis, and I was wondering from your perspective as as a subject matter expert in performing root cause analysis. Is the psychological factors that are identified in the fraud triangle, is that something that can be 
if not uncovered, at least investigated through a root cause analysis? Oh, I think so. I think, you know, you take all the data that you, that you would, you, you, I would, I would, I would, you know, literally reach out and hug all the data that we learned from, you know, from either doing an investigation or, or some type of inquiry into a matter and use that to our advantage in, you know, uncovering or, or to, you know, figuring out what the root cause was of a particular situation. Um, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not a licensed psychologist or a medical doctor, but I, I do know human behavior based on my 30 years, 30 plus years of experience. And I think looking at, you know, sort of pressure opportunity and rationalization along with competence and arrogance, and then taking a look at sort of, you know, if you look at the, you know, the fraud acts, which are the act, the concealment and the conversion, which is actually the crime element in our metal model. Um, I, I think that's, that's ultimately important in doing root cause analysis because, you know, in root cause analysis, what we're really trying to do is we're really trying to find the one domino that fell. And, you know, is it, you know, did you hire somebody that really shouldn't have been in that organization? How did they get into that organization? You know, that that's something that you really need to consider. And that's not something that you could potentially, you know, uh, initiate countermeasures for. Um, and so, you know, getting to the root cause of things and really considering, you know, pressures, opportunities and rationalizations when we're looking at root cause, you know, is certainly, certainly critical. You know, take a look at opportunity, for example, opportunity in the fraud model, um, you know, in, you know, from a perpetrator perspective, based on our meta model, opportunities, the internal controls are in place. When we're looking at root cause, we are looking, you know, were the controls in place? Were they properly designed? Do they meet the organization's objectives? You know, are there proper, you know, proper policies and procedures, you know, that that, that sort of augment this? Is there proper monitoring in place? I mean, these are all things that would relate to control. Um, and, you know, is it a breakdown of the control? Is it negligence? Is it just pure fraud? Is it management override? I, I would take a look at every single one of the elements that we laid out on our meta model when I'm absolutely doing it, when we're doing a fraud, um, you know, obviously an investigation, but more importantly, specifically when we're doing root cause analysis as well. So, Jonathan, one of the things that I think makes you unique in this field is you uh, have the ability to go in and do the day-to-day spade tactical work, but you also work with boards of directors. If you could send a message to boards of directors around the meta model of fraud, what would it be? My message to the board, uh, the board of directors, and specifically the audit committee is the game is changing and has changed for a while. And... You should be challenging your chief compliance officer, your chief legal officer, and your chief audit executive on how they're, you know, how they're, how they're looking at fraud within your organization. Um, the old tactics and strategies on assessing risk simply don't apply anymore. There are new tactics and strategies for doing a fraud risk assessment and assessing risk and building that and operationalizing that into the audit plan, operationalizing that into the compliance program. And then certainly, you know, a key component of this is certainly from a, you know, a, a legal perspective, you know, your general counsel should be ultimately involved in this, in this exercise as well. So, um, my, you know, my, my, that's my message. My bigger message is that, you know, if you look at the triangle of the compliance function, the legal function, and the audit function, they all have to be working in harmony. And if they're not working in harmony and sharing information, um, it's a really tough battle in today's day and age. So, Jonathan, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, uh, but I've been visiting with Jonathan Marks on he and Scott Fleming and Richard Riley's article, Meta Model of Fraud, which appears in the most recent issue of Fraud Magazine, the July-August 2018 issue. Jonathan, it's also available on your um, 
social media site. Could you give us that uh, site? Sure, Tom. So uh, my blog site is boardandfraud.com. That's B-O-A-R-D-A-N-D-F-R-A-U-D.com. So boardandfraud.com. And, um, you know, uh, it's up there as well, and you can certainly get it from the ACFE website as well. So, Jonathan, uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. And thank you for not only coming to Houston, but taking the time to visit with me today. Always fun, Tom. Thanks for having me. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. As I indicated, we'll link to Jonathan's article in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed this first live podcast from Moderno's Taco Cafe in Houston, Texas. I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.